knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Genesis chapter 36. How many of you looked ahead at what we're going to cover tonight? Anyone? Okay. So some who did are going to be like, oh, genealogy. And others will be like, oh. <laughs> Success. Something that almost everyone desires. Most parents encourage their kids to do well in school to, uh, so they can get to a good college so they ultimately can have a good job and be successful. And as we start growing up, the world continues to tell us what their view of success is. And the world's view of success is really based on how much we achieve, how much we accumulate for ourselves. In their eyes, the more money you have, the more fame you have, the more power you have, the more successful that you ultimately are. But something important for us to understand is that God has a very different view of success than what the world's view of success is. Jesus said this in Mark 8, 34-36, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus says a successful life in the eyes of God is one where we deny ourselves, not indulge ourselves, not try to get everything this world has to offer, but a life that denies ourselves, takes up our cross, and follows Jesus. It's when we seek to lose our life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake that we truly are successful. And Jesus poses a very important question for those whose view of success is shaped by the world and what we accumulate, what we achieve, what we can get from the fame and the power and all the other things. And he asked this wonderful question, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? What good is it if we gain everything this world has to offer in this life if in the next life, if in eternity, we're damned to hell? What good is it if we have the success of the world if we lose something far more valuable, the success of God and spending eternity with Him in hell? You know, sadly, too many people miss what God says is successful. And they only live for and they only pursue what the world says is successful. And we live in a culture that is constantly bombarding us with their idea of success. They're telling us this and that and that. You know, These are the things that you need to pursue. This is what you need to get. This is what you need to do if you're truly going to be successful. And the question we need to ask ourselves as Christians is, what is true success in the eyes of God? 
That should be what we're really wanting to know. What does God say is a successful life? Am I living for things that really matter to God? Or am I just living for what the world says matters? Now I share all this because here in Genesis 36, we have the genealogy of Esau, something that we're just looking forward to. We love genealogies. But you know what? This one's actually a little bit different. It has more information than most. Most are just kind of this person, you know, had this person who had this person who had that person who had that person, and all the names are difficult to pronounce. But in this genealogy, we see some things about Esau and his descendants and their life and what they pursued and what they accomplished. And we ultimately are going to be told what they achieved and accumulated in this life. And you know what? From the world's perspective, Esau and his descendants were extremely successful. If you look at them, and if you were to put them even in in our day today, the world would elevate them as, man, that's a successful family. That's what you should follow. That's what you should want to be like. Look at Esau. Look at his kids. Look what they accomplished in the world that they lived in. But the sad reality for them is, yeah, they succeeded in the world, but they failed where it matters most with God. They gained much of the world, but as Jesus said, lost their own soul in the process. You know, some people look at Genesis 36 as this interruption to Jacob's story because we've been seeing the life of Jacob build and build and all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, why are we looking at Esau? This is an interruption to Jacob. Let's get away from Esau. But it's not an interruption, it's a contrast. We're seeing a contrast of Esau and his descendants contrasted with Jacob and his. And right away, we're going to move from Jacob to the first descendant that's really focused on, which is Joseph. And then, you know, a majority of the Bible is going to be dealing with Jacob's descendants. But here we just have this one chapter dealing with Esau and his descendants and some of what they accumulated, some of what they were able to acquire in this life. And it's going to be seen in contrast to what Jacob and his descendants had, and we see the wealth of the world, we see the success of the world, we see the power of the world, and Esau and his descendants that we don't really see in the same way, especially early on with Jacob and his descendants. And so we're going to kind of have this contrast between these two families here in chapter 36, revealing Esau versus the rest of the Bible, really, with Jacob. And while Esau was out conquering the land of Edom, while he was founding a nation, while he was fathering kings, while he was making a great worldly success of himself and his children followed with that, Jacob was living quietly in a land he never owned, a land where his father sojourned. While Esau's descendants were mighty chiefs and kings, famous in their day, Jacob's descendants were slaves in Egypt. So as we look at this genealogy of Esau, I want to see it in contrast to what we know of, if you know the Bible, Jacob and the story of Israel and and what we're going to see in the future. But the real thing I want us to see is that we kind of have two roads set before us. First, the worldly road to earthly success, to worldly fame and power. And second, we have the godly road, which ultimately is the road of obedience to the will of God that brings success in the eyes of God. The worldly road focuses on the things which are seen, the things which are now, the things that are present around us. you got to get all you can before you die. The mindset of the, the worldly pursuit where the godly road 
is focused on the things that are not seen, the things that are eternal, the things that are coming in heaven and living for that and denying what we have here in this life. The worldly road is seen as a success from the world, but as a failure to God. And the godly road is seen as a success to God, but a failure from the world. So you and I are faced with the choice. Which road to success are we going to pursue? The worldly road to success or the godly road to success? And that's really going to be determined based on your view of what a successful life really is. And this is why it's so important here to see, you know, what does God say is a successful life? And also, what hinders us from that? And that's really what we're going to be seeing here in chapter 36. We're going to see four areas in Jacob and his descendants' lives where they succeed according to the world's standard of success, but fail according to God's standard of success. And as we look at these four areas of their life where they ultimately fail in God's standard of success, I'm going to share with us four things that hinders us from godly success. Four things that I think all of us struggle with when it comes to succeeding in the things that matter most. And so if you want godly success, and what we're going to look at tonight in this chapter, it's important for us to understand because it's those things that try to keep us from that. Those things that try to hinder us from achieving the success that is most important. So the first area where Esau and his descendants succeed according to the world standards, but fail in the standard that God has established is in the first five verses here in Genesis 36, which says this. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemeth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemeth bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So this genealogy starts with something that's important. We're told that Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan. How Esau chose wives is the first thing I want us to know because it's different from how his brother chose, how his father chose. Remember, Isaac ultimately didn't choose a wife at all. He had Abraham's servant, Eliezer, go out and do it. But notice how Eliezer found the wife. God directed Eliezer to Isaac's wife. Jacob had the same experience. God directed Jacob to the woman that he was to marry. But Esau, he had a different way in which he chose a wife. God wasn't a part of the process. God wasn't directing him. He just made a choice based on his own desires, based on what he wanted. And the world would think, hey, that's great. Esau, that's the way you do it. You don't need God's direction in choosing a wife. You choose who you want based on your own desires. That's the best way to do it. Way to go, Esau. The world would say that was very successful, the way that he approached the women he was going to marry. You know, and from the names of Esau's wives, it seems to show us what he based his choice on. And I want you to note here, we're told that Esau married three women. And notice the names of them. We have Adah, Aholibama. I haven't heard anyone ever use that name again. I think that would be an interesting name to hear someone named. And Basemeth. 
Now, I want you to note something interesting, since we probably don't really think about these names as we go through and hear them. If you go back to chapter 26, you'll find that Esau, when he gets married, we're told the names of his wives, and these aren't their names. In 26, we're told he marries two women, Canaanites, like we're told here, and their names are Judas, Judith sorry, and Basemith. And then in chapter 28, he takes a third wife, whose name was Mahalath. And now we come to chapter 36, and the names of the wives have been changed. Now, in that culture, it wouldn't have been the wives themselves who would have had the opportunity to change their names. They wouldn't have had the, you know, the, the power to do that. So the one who would have would have been Esau. So it seems that Esau, from the time he married these women to now, has changed all of their names. And I think it's interesting because if you're going to choose someone's name, you're probably going to choose it based on something about them. And so the names, uh, the, the definitions of these names, I think, are interesting to note. So Judith was her birth name, and her name is now changed to Adah, which means beauty or, or ornaments, most likely because she was extremely beautiful. And so Esau's saying, hey, you know what? I'm changing your name to beauty, you know, because that's what you are. And it's most likely the reason why he chose her. You know, I'm choosing you because you're a beautiful woman and that's pretty much it. Now, Basemith's name was changed to Aholibama, which means tall and stately. Most likely because she was a tall, stately woman. He's like, you know what? This fits you perfectly. And this is another reason why I have chosen you. Now, Mahala's name was changed to Basemith, which is interesting because he already had a wife named that, but maybe he thought the wife that was named that didn't fit it because the name means sweetness. And maybe she wasn't sweet at all, but his third wife was sweet, and he's like, you know what, this fits you well. And so he most likely had a beautiful wife, a tall, stately wife, a sweet wife, and those were the reasons why he chose to marry them. Their outward beauty, their, their sweet personality. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a beautiful woman with a great personality or a handsome man who treats you well, but if that's the only thing you're looking for, if that's the only requirement you have as a Christian, then you do have problems. And this is where we see the problem, I think, that comes up with Esau, where he's not concerned with where they're at spiritually. Yeah, I got some beautiful women here that I've chosen, and the world would say, good for you. But yeah, God would say, wait a second, you haven't chosen spiritual women. Since Esau chose these women from a pagan place, since God did not lead him to choose them, and since Esau wasn't a spiritual man, I think it's it's good to conclude that he didn't really care about where these women were at concerning the things of God. And it seems like that was not a part of Esau's criteria for a wife. Now, from the world's perspective, Hey, this was successful. Esau, you're doing great, man. You got a wife who's beautiful. You got a wife who's tall and stately. You got a wife who's sweet, even though the other ones aren't. And, you know, so you kind of got it all together. I also want you to note that none of Esau's wives had any problem bearing children. Each one of them give Esau a son. He has five sons in total. One gives him three sons. The other two give him one son each. And they also give him daughters. And remember, in that culture, as we've looked at with those who have had problems being barren, that was huge. Marrying a wife that could give you children and more importantly, give you a son was like, man, you've got the right woman. And so every single one of these women bear him a son. Now, remember, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Rachel, Jacob's wife, they all suffered the same problem. They were all barren. And from the world's perspective, <laughs> and you guys chose poorly, this didn't turn out so well for you, did it? 
Their one main role they can't accomplish. They can't give you children. And so the world would have looked at him, and they are not a successful woman to have as a wife. But for Esau, wow, you got three wives, and they all given you sons. You're doing great. But the question really is, what did God say about the wives that Esau chose? Would God look at Esau's choice and the women that he chose to marry as successful in his eyes? If you remember back in chapter 26, when Esau first married these two wives, we see that Isaac and Rebekah have a response to that. And I think their response is similar to God's response. And we're told in chapter 26, verse 35, and they were a grief, speaking of the wives of Esau, of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. As Isaac and Rebekah look at these pagan women and the fact that there was more than one that Esau chooses to marry, man, they're a grief of mine to them because they realize this isn't good. This is not the kind of woman that you should have married, Esau. Esau didn't look to God. He didn't look to his parents for direction and who he should marry. It just seems that he chose based on beauty chose based on the, the outward and maybe even chose based on a little bit of sweetness and you know personality, but spirituality, that wasn't what he was focused on. And Esau also has three wives. And as we know, God's plan, God's desire is for one man to marry one woman. That's what God wants. And Esau multiplies that. He goes with three women instead of one woman. So Esau and his family, from the world's perspective, you know, they were very successful. If you remember from the early start of Esau, man, he's the man's man. He's that outdoors man. He marries three women. They're beautiful. He has five kids. We're going to see that his kids grow up to be like huge leaders in the area that they're in. And so from the world's perspective, they're thinking, there is the family that you should be like. What a success they are. But there's one big problem in this family. God's not a part of it. Esau and his family failed to succeed in what matters most because they left God out of their lives. You know, Esau set an ungodly example to his family. He never made God a priority in his life. He didn't care about God in his life. And you're going to see that neither does his descendants all the way to the time of Jesus. None of them ever get right with God. None of them ever care about God. Esau has this example that's horrible, and we see it followed by his sons and his grandson and his great-grandsons, and the list goes on and on. I think something important for us to understand is that the type of success that we choose to pursue will influence not only the way in which we live, but those that we have influence over. So for parents especially, we need to realize, what is it that we're pushing our kids to succeed in? And this is something that I find very interesting as I I look at a lot of Christian parents, and there's a huge emphasis to succeed, succeed, succeed in ways that aren't necessarily bad, but it's like, well, where's the emphasis in godly succession, where's, why aren't you focusing on that? It's like, yeah, well, they played football, or they were the head cheerleader, or they got all A's, or they went to this great school, and they have this wonderful job, and they're making all this money. But you know what? If they don't have God at the end of it all, then what good is it? 
All of those things in their life, if they're abandoning God and just living for themselves, you know, oh, I've succeeded. Yeah, in the world's eyes, you have. Oh, I have so much. Well, good for you, but you still have traded that in for an eternity in hell. Why is that something good? And so I think as parents, we need to remember to emphasize first and foremost, what matters most? That's what we should want our kids to succeed in first. Now, those other things aren't bad. Going to good schools, getting good jobs, those things aren't bad. If the first thing's first, if they're succeeding with God, then anything else they're going to do is going to be for God. But if all they're living for is that junk, then it's not worth it. So the first thing I want you to take note of that hinders godly success is when you follow the world instead of following God, you will not have godly success. You know, this point should be obvious. And you hear it and you think, oh, duh. But you know what? I've seen in my own life so many times, and I've seen it in so many other Christians, where we're living for the things of the world, and we think we can also be successful with God. But it doesn't work that way. If you pursue success in the world's eyes, you're pursuing that kind of success, it will keep you from success with God. If you're following the things of the world, don't think that you're now going to succeed in the things of God. It just doesn't work. You know, I've had so many um, married couples come to me and their marriage is hurting and they're wondering, I just don't know why our marriage isn't succeeding. And then when you listen to them, you realize you are pursuing everything that you're listening to, everything that you're trying to do is worldly. You know, the way that you're treating each other is worldly. What you're trying to accomplish in your marriage is worldly. What it's based on is worldly. And so why are you shocked that you don't have godly success in your marriage? If you're not following what God's Word says that you should be doing, don't be surprised when you don't have the success that you ultimately want to have because you're not following the blueprints that God has established. You know, and that's the same in any area of life. You want your marriage, you want your family, you want your personal life, you want your job, whatever it is. You want it to be a success in the eyes of God? Then you got to follow what He says. Don't think, well, I can just do what the world says and I'm somehow going to have godly success at the end. It doesn't work that way. The second area where Esau and his descendants succeeded according to the world's standard of success but failed according to God's standard of success is in verses 6-8. through Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Esau became a man full of material possessions. He has so much, so many cattle, which would have been like the thing you want back in that time. He actually can't dwell with Jacob because Jacob was quite blessed as well. And so both of them have been blessed by God. They have all this wealth, so much so that Esau's like, well, we, I'm moving. I got to get out of here. I'm going to Seir because, you know, we can't dwell together. We have too much, you know, for us to both be able to have enough for our animals to eat and things. And so Esau moves on. Now, there's nothing wrong with Esau being materially wealthy. Jacob was materially wealthy. Esau's problem was that he's spiritually poor. But Esau's content with just being materially wealthy and spiritually poor. 
And this is the sad reality of Esau's life. You know, he didn't care. Remember, he was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. But the birthright represented the spiritual headship of the home, which Esau never cared about. The blessing, on the other hand, that represented money. And he weeped when he didn't get that. So we see from early on Esau's heart. He didn't care about the things of God. He cared about the things of the world. He wanted to accumulate lots of wealth, and he does. He becomes a very wealthy man. But the sad reality of Esau's life is he's spiritually poor, and he doesn't seem to be bothered by that reality. Hey, I got what I want. I have the material riches. I'm rich in the world's eyes. I don't care if I'm poor in the eyes of God. You know, this is a sad thing that I think happens to many people. Material riches often cause people to be spiritually poor and they totally miss the reality that they have a spiritual need. Jesus warned the church in Laodicea of this in Revelation 3.17. He says this, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This was this church, man. Well, we got everything. We're so wealthy. We don't have, we don't need anything. Materially, we don't need anything. Jesus says, Oh, you missed it. You are a wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked person spiritually. This describes so many people in America today. People who think, well, I'm materially rich. I'm in need of nothing. It's like, well, you're in need of nothing materially, but you are completely bankrupt spiritually. You are poor and you are blind and you are naked and you are wretched and you don't see your spiritual bankruptcy, but you think I have everything I need, but you don't. And that's where you go to a place like we just went to, Kenya, and you see people who are poor. And so often, statistically, when people are poor materially, they're often more open to their needs spiritually because they recognize, I have needs. They're open to the reality when you tell them, hey, there's a need even bigger than the one that you have materially. You're bankrupt spiritually. And they realize, well, I want that as well. But wealthy people often struggle and they think, I don't have any needs. I mean, I got my bank account full. You know, I got all my needs met. And so when you come to them and say, no, you're, you're spiritually bankrupt. No, I'm not. I got everything I want. Jesus gives a parable of someone who is rich in this world, but not rich towards God. In Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16, he said this. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be? which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. 
Jesus gives this parable of a man who already has an abundance of wealth. He has so much he can't even store it anymore. And he decides, well, instead of taking the, the extra that I have and, and giving it away and blessing other people, forget that. You know what? I'll just build bigger barns and I'll store it all there and I'll just take my break in life and be like, man, I got money for a long time. I'm just going to take it easy. And Jesus says, you fool. Tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. Tonight, you're going to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you're going to be like that person that Jesus says, you traded the things of this world and ultimately gave your soul in the process. Notice what Jesus ends with. So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, Esau and his family were like the man in Jesus' parable. They have been laying up treasures for themselves. And according to the world, look at how successful you are. Look at all you've attained and acquired. But they were not successful in the eyes of God because they were not rich towards God. The second thing I want you to take note of that hinders godly success is when you pursue the world's riches over God's riches, you will not have godly success. As Christians, we need to ask ourselves a very important question. Where am I storing up treasures? Is it in heaven or is it here on this earth? And you can just look at your life. You can look at you know your bank account. You can look at where you spend everything and you can really determine that because how you store up treasures in heaven is based on what you do with the treasures you have in this life. How you spend things here will either be it's for here or it's for something eternal. How you live this life, how you spend things in this life, is are you giving it for the kingdom? Are you using it for God? Or are you just all about acquiring and getting more for yourself? Am I pursuing the riches of this world or the riches of God? You know, the riches that really matter, the ones that are truly valuable, are the ones that are going to last for eternity. And those are the ones that are stored in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. But then Jesus says, you know, what? Well, why are you storing up treasures on earth? They can be taken. They can be destroyed. They can just, you know, fade away. But the treasures you store in heaven, they're eternal. They're far more valuable. Those are the riches that we should be focused on because they are the ones that really matter. The third and fourth area where Esau and his family were successful in the world's eyes, but not in God's eyes, are in the rest of this chapter, which have several verses. And I'm going to read through them. I'm going to break them up into little sections. I'm going to throw out a couple explanations. There's a lot of names that are hard to pronounce through here. But when we get done, I'm going to focus on these last two areas in which they ultimately fail and that we need to realize hinder us from being successful in God's eyes. Verse 9 says this, And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edenites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. And Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the son of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bore Amalek, to Eliphaz. These were sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Bathmath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholibamah, 
Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. And so Esau's genealogy here starts, as most genealogies do. You have Esau, you have the women that he married, you have the sons that those women produced for him, and then you also get to see the grandsons that are produced from his sons. Uh, And so we have all of this, and as this genealogy continues, I want you to note a word that's going to pop up over and over again connected to the sons of Esau, the grandsons of Esau, and that's the word chief. A chief was a ruler of a clan. It was a person who had, you know, lots of uh, control and power over the group of people that were under him. And so each time you see this word chief connected to an individual, realize that person was in that role. They were the leader of this clan. They were the ruler and had control over the people under them. And so notice how many people connected with Esau rise to this level of authority. Verse 15, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The son of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were Chief Taman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kanaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatim, and Chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Eden. These were the sons of Adah. So Esau has a wife, Adah. He has a firstborn son, Eliphaz. And Eliphaz rises to this level of chief. He's this ruler over a clan of people, but he has seven sons. And each one of his sons also rises to this level of chief and is a leader of a clan that's under them as well. And so under just the firstborn son, you have Esau, his firstborn is a chief, and then you got seven more grandsons that are also all chiefs as well. And remember, man, the world looking at this and thinking, <laughs> that's a pretty good lineage there, Esau. I mean, you got your firstborn and every one of his sons, all are chiefs. I mean, how many people can say that? Verse 17, these were the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, chief Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Shema, and chief Mezah. These were the chief of Reuel in the land of Eden, These were the sons of Basemith, Esau's wife. Well, remember Esau took three women, so we already saw the first wife he took. Here's the second wife he took, uh, and they have Reuel. He also is a chief, and he has four sons, and they are all chiefs as well. And so once again, we see this continual pattern of success and power and rule that's happening in the life of Esau and his descendants, verses 18 and 19. And these were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, chief Jeshu, chief Jalam, chief Korah. These were the chief who descended from Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, who was Edom, and these were their chiefs. So the third wife that Esau has is Aholibamah, and she bore Esau three sons, where the only the other two only bore him one, but we don't see anything about them having sons who are chiefs, but all three of them are chiefs. And so, so far we see that Esau has five sons who are all chiefs, and he has 11 grandsons who are chiefs. So his family, right away, we see this power, this authority within the land that they lived, that they had as they settled in Seir. Now, there were people in the land of Seir, named after Seir the Horite, before Esau ever came into the land. 
And so we have a genealogy here in verses 20 through 30 of Seir the Horite, who was already there, but who also joins forces with Esau. And so they kind of, you know, now they're going to be intermarrying and their families are going to be connected. And so as the future comes and you look at Edom, which is the descendants of Esau, there's going to be people from Seir who are going to be a part of that. And so that's why this genealogy is connected here. And so we see the genealogy of Seir, the one who founded the place that Esau and his family goes to, starting in verse 20, says this. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, and Ah. Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lothan were Horai and Heman. Lothan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Mahanath, Ebal, Shepo, and Anam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Ajah and Anah. These were Anah, who founded the water in the wilderness, and he pastured the donkey of his father, Zibion. These were the children of Anah. Dishon and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Dishon, Hemdon, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheron. These were the sons of Erez, Bilhana, Zavan, and Achan. These were the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These were the chiefs of the Horites. Now notice their chief. They have chiefs as well. Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anah, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Jishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to the chiefs in the land of Seir. So notice these are the ones who, you know, Seir, the father of all of this, the, the one who this land was named after, he comes in and it seems that he's kind of established, he, he probably took it from other nations of this chiefly role, this role over a clan, and you know, his sons are ultimately in this chiefly role. And then all of a sudden Esau and his family, they come into this, and that wasn't the example that they had. Abraham didn't have chiefs and anything. So all of a sudden they come into this, and, hey, this is good. We like this. You know, this is rise to power. Have people under you that you have an authority over and control over. And so we see that Esau and his family take on, you know, the same kind of thing that the people in Seir are doing. And now they're intermarrying and they're kind of becoming one. But notice that Esau's family rises even more. Chiefs are, you know, significant, especially when you have a lot of them in your family. But there's a, a role higher than a chief, which would be the role of king. And notice that we see in verses 31 through 39 that not only did Esau's descendants achieve a lot of chiefs, but we see many of them became kings as well. Verse 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, son of Beor, reigned in Edom. And the name of his city was Dinahab. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah and Bozerah reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadab, the son of Bedab, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Abath. When Hadad died, Samlah and Meshrachah reigned in his place. And when Samlah died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baalhanah, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And while Baalhanah, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place, and the name of the city was Pah. His wife's name was Mehdabal, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. 
So notice we're told, now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom when before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Does anyone know who the first king of Israel was? Who was the first king of Israel? Thank you, Manny. Saul. David was the second. Saul was the first king of Israel. And from the death of Jacob all the way until Saul is 594 years. Okay, so Jacob's death all the way till Saul becoming king, almost 600 years transpire. And sometime within that 600 years, all of a sudden the descendants of Esau are becoming kings. Okay, and this is significant because in the um, promise that God gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, one of the things he says is kings are going to come from you. But they haven't yet. But you know who kings did come from? They came from Esau. And so the world will be thinking, wow, look at the success here. There's 12 kings that reign. Each one started after the other one died. And so they most likely reign for hundreds and hundreds of years. If each one of them live a good life, die, and the next one starts, and there's 12 of them. Uh, and so you know, we see once again, wow, not only were there chiefs among Esau's descendants, but more significantly, there are kings. And now the chapter ends once again, focusing on some of the chiefs of Esau, verses 40 through 43. And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jethim, Chief Aholibama, Chief Allah, Chief Penan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timna, uh, Taman, Chief Midbazar, Chief Magdiel, chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Eden according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. So now that we've gotten through all those big names, we get to the main things that I want you to see here as we see all of that. We see something that comes up over and over again. The fact that they are chiefs. The fact that they are kings. Esau's descendants were men of great political power. And I want you to note as Esau's descendants ruled for hundreds of years as kings and chiefs, Jacob's descendants are slaves for hundreds of years. From the world's perspective, Esau's descendants were far more successful than Jacob's descendants. But we need to remember that political power and power with God are two very different things. The world often boasts of its political power. Daniel 2 tells us that the Lord is the one who removes kings, and He's also the one who establishes them. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the hard way. And he thought, I'm the man. I've done all this. I've achieved all this. And God's like, oh, really? Well, let me take you for seven years and make you a wild beast so that you'll remember that I'm the one who's truly in control. I'm the one who's the one who has power. I think it's fine and actually good for Christians to be involved in politics, but we need to keep things in perspective. Political power is always subject to God, who is the one who is truly in control. True power is having power with God. Esau's kingdom, which ultimately was Edom, later caused great trouble for God's people, the nation of Israel. There were frequent wars between the two nations. Edom, we see, cheered those who attacked God's people. They were a part of that themselves. 
If you note, one of Esau's grandsons' name is Almelech, or Amalek, sorry, which was the founder of the Amalekites. If you read through the Old Testament, you see the Amalekites were people who constantly were warring against the nation of Israel. Esau and his family thought they were powerful because they ruled as chiefs and kings, but you know what? They didn't have the true power. They didn't have the power of God because that was the one part of their life that they always neglected. And Esau and his descendants didn't have God's power because ultimately they didn't make him a priority. The third thing I want you to take note of that hinders godly success is when having power in this world is more important than the power of God, you will not have godly success. You know, as Christians, we have been given an amazing power, the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And I'm saddened by the reality that so many Christians are so focused on pursuing the world's power that they forget the power that dwells within them. They forget what that power can accomplish. They just abandon it. They ignore it. They don't do anything with it. And we're so focused on pursuing the power of what the world can offer and we forget, wow, look at the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in me, that can change my life, that can make me live for God and make a true impact in this world that will last for eternity. So Esau and his descendants had the family that the world viewed as a success. They had the riches that the world viewed as a success. They had the power that the world views as, as a success. And they also had another thing the world views as successful, and that is fame. From the world's perspective, Esau was a man of great fame, especially in comparison to Jacob. At the end of their lives, Jacob had about 70 descendants who all went to Egypt and were living under the umbrella of Pharaoh. At the same time, Esau had conquered Edom. He established a dynasty of sons and grandsons who were chiefs and kings. By Moses' day, about 400 years after that, Israel was a slave nation. They just escaped from Egypt. They had no land of their own that they owned. Edom was an established kingdom, so much so that the Israelites came to Edom and they would not allow them to pass through their land. The Edomite race endured until the time of Christ. And you know what? They were still kings. But their kingship actually became more significant because they went from being kings over other people to now being kings over Israel. At the time of Christ, we know his name, Herod the Great, the king of the Jews. Not the one that they chose, the one that the Romans chose for them. But you know, Herod the Great is a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomite. He's a man who rose just like all these other kings into this great position of power and so much so that he was over the nation of Israel. And then his son, Herod Antipas, also obviously a descendant of Eden, uh, Esau, sorry, was as well a man of great power a man of great wealth. But both of those men, just like their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Esau, had no desire for God. God was not part of their life. Yes, they rose to you know power that people would have adored and loved. They had wealth that people would have died for. But yet, just like Esau, they were spiritually poor. And they were not just people who didn't follow God, 
But Herod the Great, we know, slaughtered all the male boys in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist beheaded. And he was the one that Jesus stood before at his trial right before his crucifixion and mocked Jesus. In a way, it was a replay of history. Esau's descendant, Herod, who at the time had far more worldly prosperity, far more worldly power and fame, and Jacob's descendant, Jesus, faced one another. God's side didn't seem to be winning. Jacob's descendant goes to the cross and dies, where Esau's descendant is mocking and sitting in a plush palace with all this wealth and power. But something we need to remember is God is the one who writes the final chapter of history. Herod the Great, like his ancestor Esau, was a successful man, but dies, loses everything in eternity. He had so much in this world, but traded it for his own soul, and now is spending eternity in hell. Jesus Christ, the descendant of Jacob, was raised from the dead, coming again to reign in glory and in power. The world recognized Esau and his descendants as famous, but what really matters is the recognition of God, not the recognition of the world. The fourth thing I want you to take note of that hinders godly success is when the recognition of this world is more important than the recognition of God, you will not have godly success. The recognition that we should really want, the words that each of us should be living this life to hear when we go to the next, is when we stand before Jesus to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But you know what? You're not going to hear those words if you're living for the world in this life. If you're pursuing everything for the world in this life. It's not going to be well done for you or for me. But you know, the most awful thing would be for the world to think we're so great, to recognize us, to elevate us, to say, man, you should be like them and to stand before Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and for Him to say, depart from me. I never knew you. On the Shetland Islands off the northern coast of Scotland, a man spent five years in a lifetime of savings building a 62-foot yacht that was made of steel and weighed 126 tons. On the launch, he invited all of his friends. They had a huge band. He was ready to sail around the world. The band played. The bottle of champagne was smashed across the bow. The ship was lowered into the water and it sunk to the bottom of the harbor. That man wasted five years and a lot of money building a useless boat that didn't float. But an even more important question for us to ask is what good is a successful life in the world's eyes when the person dies and they're not ready for eternity? When we stand before Jesus and we got nothing to show for it. And it's not just a matter of heaven and hell. Obviously, that's the biggest thing. That's the verse that I started with. What good is it you know, to gain the whole world, let lose your own soul? But Paul also tells us, for those of us who are Christians, when we stand before the Lord, our works in this life will be judged by fire. And some of what we've done in this life is going to be like wood and hay and straw, and it's going to burn. 
Why? Because it wasn't done for the Lord. We were just pursuing the things of the world. We were trying to be successful in the world's eyes. We wanted to accumulate the power and the fame and the wealth. And it was just for ourselves. And that stuff's just going to burn. There's not going to be any eternal rewards for that. But there are going to be things that are precious stones. And when they're tested by the fire, they're going to endure and we're going to be rewarded. And he goes to the end of that and says, and some of you will be saved as through fire, meaning you're not going to get any rewards in heaven. You're still going to be saved. You're still going to go, still accepted Christ, but yet you wasted this life. You lived for yourself and you have nothing in heaven as a reward for what you did for God in this life because there wasn't anything. And that's a sad reality as well. Obviously, the most sad is not going to heaven, but even going just barely making it living for everything this world has to offer and not living for eternity. But I do want to remind us because the people in this world that we're seeking to reach, they bought into the lie. Mark 8.36, Jesus shares that question that we need to pose to them, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, Esau and his descendants, they gained the whole world and they went to hell. The world looks at them, man, be like them. Look at the power. Look at the wealth. Look at everything that they accomplished and achieved. I mean, wow, what a family to be like. God says, this family's burning for eternity. Why would you want to follow them? Why would you want to be like them? Well, it's because we have two different views of success. The world's view versus God's view. The world's view is very temporal in what they're seeking. God's view is eternal in what he's seeking. If we succeed by the world standards but fail with God, we have failed where it really matters. But whether we fail or succeed according to the world standards, if we succeed according to God, we have true and lasting success. And that's the thing that we need to remember because so often we're so concerned of like, oh, I'm a failure in the world's eyes. I don't make enough money. I don't have enough power. You know, my Family's not important enough or whatever in the world's eyes. And that seems to be what keeps us up at night instead of, well, wait a second, what does God think about me? What does God think about my family? What does God think about the way in which I'm living my life? If I'm succeeding with Him, who cares what the world thinks? Because one day I'm going to stand before Him. He's the one that I should truly want to be pleasing. So if you want to succeed with God, you need to be aware of things that hinder you from that success. Following the world over following God will definitely hinder you from that success. Pursuing worldly riches over the riches of God will hinder being successful with God. Desiring the power of this world over God's power or seeking the recognition of this world over God. Those are all things that we're tempted by. All things that we struggle with and realize they will hinder us from true success, from what truly matters most. And you know what? I know I read the Bible and I read like Esau and I read of David and I read of other people where you see David and you see King Saul in the palace hunting him down. You're thinking, here's the guy who's living for God and here's the guy who has so much. You see Herod the Great living in the palace. You see these Jews that he's over that are, you know, poor and all these problems. It's like, why is it that the wicked seem to have so much and the righteous seem to be doing so poorly? But we need to remember the eternal picture. Yeah, they might have a lot in this life, 
But who cares if for eternity they're in hell? I mean, who's going to really, if they knew that, would say, well, you know what, yeah, I'll take 70 years of the good life forever to burn in hell. I'm not going to give that trade-off. You know, give me 70 years of misery and eternity in heaven. And I think that's where we so often miss, and we miss the eternal picture. And you look at the life of Paul, and you see how much he was willing to endure, and he says, you know what, yeah, because I balance the light affliction I go through in this life versus the eternal weight of glory that's coming to me, and I realize when I go to the scale, the weight of glory that's in eternity is far more than the light affliction that I deal with, and it's interesting the word light that he uses for all that he went through, but yet he's saying it's worth it. It's worth the imprisonment, it's worth the suffering, it's worth the stoning, it's worth the beating, because you know what? I know where I'm headed. I know what true success is, and it's not what this world says. It's not living for those things. It's not the comfort of life that so many want. It's living for Jesus. And so as we come to this genealogy that we so often just pass by and don't want to read, here is a representation of a family that had so much but yet to what we know scripturally, they're all going to hell. What a sad reality that this is a family that the world today would be like, oh, be like them. And sadly, many are seeking that. And if they continue in that path without accepting Christ, they're going to have the same eternal result. Any thoughts?